to the 403rd of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I speak with social epidemiologist Justin Feldman. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. And you can always keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests, future topics. And as always, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. Some vaccination information, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center, as of today, January 25th, 2022, 79.4% of Canadians are fully vaccinated, 64.1% of those living in the United States are fully vaccinated, and 60% of people living in Mexico are fully vaccinated COVID-19. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is nurse who got first authorized U.S. COVID vaccine says we cannot continue to live like this. This appeared December 14th, 2021 on PBS NewsHour by Laura Santanam. One year ago, nurse Sandra Lindsay sat down in a slate blue chair at Long Island Jewish Medical Center in New York, rolled up her white sleeve, and made history. Lindsay arrived at work that Monday knowing she would be among the first people in her hospital and the United States to get vaccinated against the deadly coronavirus, but she had no idea she would be the first outside of clinical trials. Since then, she's appeared on national television to advocate for vaccination. She's been celebrated in a ticker tape parade for healthcare workers and was recognized for her courage by President Joe Biden during a ceremony at the White House. The scrubs she wore were donated to the National Museum of American History, part of the collection that will record this chapter of life in the United States. I can't even wrap my mind around that, she told PBS NewsHour. Throughout the pandemic, Lindsay has worked alongside her staff of nurses she directs to save patients from this terrifying disease. A longtime advocate of the power of vaccines, she said she monitored the news, read research studies about efforts to slow the spread of the virus, and prayed in the months before she got her shot. She knew that the world, and especially her patients and staff, could not rely on social distancing, hand hygiene, and face masks alone to stay safe. We needed a more powerful tool, Lindsay said. Once she received her first vaccine dose, she encouraged fellow nurses and people in her life to get vaccinated. Lindsay said she felt hope, relief, and a belief that the pandemic's spread would slow as more people got theirs. Looking at the hospital where she's worked for years, as well as how life has changed since multiple COVID-19 vaccines became available, it's a stark contrast to where we were a year ago, Lindsay said. Far fewer people are showing up at her hospital because they are sick with the coronavirus, she added. Lindsay knows there's more work to do. About three-quarters of the United States population age five or older have gotten at least one vaccine dose, according to CDC data. The story is from December. The coronavirus has mutated into a succession of variants that have become more transmissible over time. Unvaccinated people still make up the overwhelming majority of those hospitalized for the virus, experts say. But fully vaccinated people 
particularly those with compromised immune systems, have been needed to seek have needed to seek medical care and treatment in part because unvaccinated people give the virus more opportunities to mutate into something even more dangerous. I was hoping for a faster sprint to cross that finish line, and you know we haven't seen that, Lindsay said. The Delta variant has been the main driver of new infections. Again, this story is from December of 2021. Hospitalizations and death for months, largely among people who had no vaccine protection. November 26, 2021, the World Health Organization alerted the globe to Omicron, a new variant of concern. This variant has been detected in dozens of countries and, of course, across the United States. With the new surge and Omicron also on the rise, Lindsay said she is not panicking but remains cautious. Working on the front lines of the nation's COVID-19 response, Lindsay knows all too well what can happen when people let down their guard against the coronavirus. After receiving three vaccine doses, including her booster, Lindsay said she is following the science and waiting for the evidence. That means that if she enters a place where she doesn't know everyone's vaccination status, she wears a face mask, practices social distancing, and washes her hands. On top of the profound anxiety and sadness that came with treating patients for and losing them to a virus that always stayed a step ahead, Lindsay also was carrying grief and stress from family crises. Her mother's sister died, and Lindsay could not console her mom in person. Her family welcomed her grandson, Avery, into the world, but his first months were fraught. Born premature on the eve of lockdown in March 2020, Avery spent nearly his first four and a half months in a hospital's neonatal intensive care unit. At times, he was unable to see anyone, even his parents, out of fear that his fragile body might be exposed to COVID-19. She worried, too, that she would get sick and not be able to care for either her parents or her family. Facing all the complexities of life, she realized she was stressed, and she was losing patience easily and unable to sleep or focus. Lindsay turned to meditation and tried to keep hold of her optimism. Nineteen months later, Lindsay said she is thrilled to be able to play with her grandson without wearing a mask, and she cannot wait until it is his turn to get vaccinated. Looking to the future, Lindsay still holds hope that things will improve. Originally from Jamaica, Lindsay said she wants to see more people vaccinated in the U.S. and around the world because until we get that, we'll continue to have variants. Part of that effort must be grounded in health equity, she said, narrowing disparities in access to the vaccine, hearing people's concerns and answering their questions. She noted that she initially had questions about the vaccine, so she did her research, listened to experts, and found information on reputable websites before deciding to get her shot. One year later, her message is that inaction is not an option. We cannot continue to live like this, she said. The story was the nurse who got first authorized U.S. COVID vaccine says we cannot continue to live like this. The story of Sandra Lindsay. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today and let me introduce my guest, Justin Feldman. Justin Feldman is a social epidemiologist and a health and human rights fellow at the Harvard FXB Center for Health and Human Rights. His research looks at how racism and economic inequality influence population health. This work has addressed multiple domains, including police violence, residential segregation, and the toll of the COVID-19 pandemic. Justin Feldman, welcome to COVID Calls. Thanks so much for having me. 
So let me start the way I generally do, find out where you're calling from and give us an update on what the pandemic's looking like there. Yeah, so I am in Providence, Rhode Island, United States. Um, we don't have wastewater monitoring in, in Providence or in Rhode Island at all, which is what you know I like to use to get, get a good handle on what's happening with spread. But in Massachusetts, uh, there was you can see there was a huge spike, and then it's gone way down. But we're still above. We're, we're still about at the same uh, level we were at the Delta's peak. Uh, so, or, or rather, last sorry, last winter. Uh, so, so it's still pretty high, but it's gone way down. Uh, our hospital system here was overrun. They were making healthcare workers go in while sick. Uh, canceling uh, elective surgeries, that sort of thing. And, you know, there, there's lag. So there was a big wave of hospitalizations and I expect a, a somewhat bigger wave of deaths than we've seen in a bit. Just one little note there, and, and I appreciate how, how careful you are in talking about how you get your data. You know, Omicron, from the minute it was first identified, people said, oh, there's this less virulent you know, variant out there. I mean, it just stuck so quickly in people's consciousness. And I, I wonder if you noted that and, and why you think that that became the way Omicron was described so quickly. Yeah. Um, what happened was politicians in, in various countries, but I know the U.S. context the best, and it was certainly prominent here. They took what amounts to a pretty technical issue uh, and they really set the narrative that way. So the idea Omicron is mild, therefore we don't have to take major precautions uh, in terms of non-pharmaceutical interventions to try to prevent its spread. Uh, so what's true there is that all the, all the data that's been analyzed suggests that one, if you are infected with the Omicron variant, uh, you are less likely to be hospitalized or end up in the ICU or die relative to the Delta variant. The Delta variant was especially virulent. Mm -hmm. um, but it, but actually, the virulence of Omicron is not that far off from either Alpha or the original Wuhan strain, it seems. Uh, but it is true that people are vaccinated now and also people have had prior immunity so for, for various reasons, I think it was convenient to call uh, Omicron milds for politicians. And, and I actually at one point looked at media headlines through a database, like comparing how many news headlines said that Delta was deadlier than previous variants versus how many said that Omicron was milder than previous variants. And the, oh. the milder headlines were about, I think, 15 times as common. <laughs> uh, for for Omicron versus the more severe for for Delta, so there was there was evidence of very clear evidence of the narrative that I was able to to see uh, quantitatively. No, that's that's an amazing finding, and it resonates intuitively probably with everybody who's listening to this discussion. I you know I wonder if I could ask you, Justin, just on a sort of personal note, if there's a moment in all of this last two years that really 
sticks with you, either something happening out there or something in, in your own life that you sort of really associate with what this COVID pandemic has meant? Yeah, I mean, there's there's been a few moments for me like that, that stick out. Like I was living in New York City in the very the very beginning in the first couple of months and just like hearing the sirens constantly, um, you know, going for a bike ride and passing by refrigerated tractor trailer trucks, uh, the, the sorry, shipping containers rather that were being used as impromptu uh, body storage. Um, so that was that was pretty bad. But some highlights were getting vaccinated for the first time. Um, I, I didn't do much indoor dining throughout the entire pandemic, but uh, I was following the data quite closely. And uh, pre-Omicron, the booster was holding up pretty well. So I, I timed my last meal, had a really nice last meal before Omicron hit in, in a restaurant. <laughs> and, then, and then have basically been, been holed up since then. That's... Uh... A kind of uh, that's a kind of a forecasting that only people with a very specialized training can do. You had the booster. You watching the data. You're like, okay, Thursday at six p.m. We can do it. Yeah, exactly. I, I caught it in the the last days when I would have been comfortable doing that. In fact, that's amazing. Um, you know, just let's go back to that first year of the pandemic um, globally, but you can focus on the United States more specifically any I, I just like to hear your take on it but particularly things that you maybe were watching for particularly things that were surprising to you in the way that the disease was was spreading because i know you study structural factors that that you know will shape how disease you know how public health is is impacted and how infectious disease works so what were you watching what were you seeing that was really standing out for you yeah so much of my research prior to the pandemic looked at uh, racial and economic inequality in all sorts of diseases, usually not infectious diseases, and also of, of uh, injury deaths and violent deaths. So everything from, from cancer to uh, police violence is an area of, of particular focus for me, and uh, many else sorts of chronic diseases, uh, either either incidents, hospitalization, or, or death. So one of the early questions that occurred to me was, uh, what are the patterns of social inequality that are being reflected? What, if any, are being reflected in the, uh, in the toll of the pandemic? And there wasn't much data out there. there at that point in the US, um, in the first months of the pandemic, there was no uh, race data, for instance, being reported for COVID outcomes. So I, I did a quick analysis of data from New York City. I looked at both positivity rates by zip code in New York City and uh, emergency department data visits for in influenza-like illness, which at that point was virtually all COVID. Uh, and I found, and I, I have a Medium post from uh, early April 2020, just it's just a, a bunch of uh, scatter plots, basically looking at the racial composition of people living in zip codes, or their immigration status, or household crowding, or employment type. Uh, so plotting that against rates of either positivity or emergency department use, and you can see very very quickly uh, household crowding in particular was an extremely strong predictor of uh, emergency department use which uh, aligned with evidence that was 
existed then, but has especially grown since about high uh, infection rates that happen within households. But yeah, it, it was, although the first few cases early on were travelers, often traveling for business, often wealthier and uh, physicians who were not yet wearing masks, uh, very quickly it came to follow the same sorts of patterns we see in other diseases in terms of racial and economic inequalities, but more extreme uh, than, than your typical uh, internal or natural cause of death than, that we usually see. So let me just, you know, let's gab, grab some of your earlier research, because I'm really interested in how that converges with what you were seeing at the beginning. I know you jumped right into, into work and trying to pull some of these social factors, racial inequality factors to play. You know, I remember um, what at the time I was working at Drexel University and John Rich was um, brought to Drexel in the public health school at that time. And he was studying gun violence, particularly among African-American young men in Philadelphia as a public health from a public health lens. And, and he won a MacArthur Award for that. Uh, and I know he wasn't the first person to do it, um, but he was really important in that early. And this was 15 years ago, I believe. And um, I remember the first time I, I heard that sort of analysis and it really, it really turned my head because I had, of course, like most people, public health was something I associated with, you know, vaccination drives. And, and um, if it, if it had to do with race, it might have to do with structural inequality, but I had never thought about violence, violence at the hands of police, gun violence um, anywhere in the case that John was looking at, particularly in Philadelphia. So it, it's, I think that must be the kind of, of ground that you come out of in your, in your research. Why were you drawn to that work? And, and tell me a little bit more about where it stands in the field of epidemiology overall today. Yeah. Um, so I, at least in the U.S. context, um, violence what became a more of an area of focus in public health and epidemiology starting in the 1980s. Uh, you had a Surgeon General report on violence as a cause of injury and death. And uh, ultimately, you had some, some World Health Organization uh, reports Doing, doing the same sorts of things, and a, a violent injury prevention unit added to CDC and some state and local health departments. So, yeah, violent injuries, which, which are pretty broad, it includes everything from suicide um, to homicide to accidental firearm injuries and deaths. Uh, they, they are major causes of death, especially for younger people, especially for Black people and, and, and men and certain parts of the U.S., it's, highly unequally distributed socially and spatially. Uh, but my, my interest was not so much as a researcher of gun violence, uh, but more as a researcher of state violence. So public health has, has typically, in, in most countries, with some exceptions like Brazil, public health has typically been very concentrated within government and the state, and even academics have not strayed too, too far from, from that uh, and not wanted to sort of see the state as a, a cause of illness, disability, and death in itself. Uh, so I was one of the, the early people, it's, it's now gotten, in U.S. research, it's now gotten a bit more common to look at uh, policing and police violence as a cause of injury and death. Uh, and, and other people, less less so myself, have also looked at police violence as a cause of sort of psychological distress and uh, 
in in a broader community context. Uh, that that's been another area of research. So yeah, I was doing my my dissertation at Harvard School of Public Health in. Uh, I was choosing my topic back in 2014, sort of right after uh, this major Black Lives Matter protests. And and th though I had intended to study police violence uh, before that, I, working with my dissertation advisor, we, we sort of reconceptualized it to think about um, violent injuries caused by police itself ra rather than the broader community effects of policing. Uh, so that ultimately my project became about one, trying to estimate how many people are killed by police in the US using public health data, finding they're severely undercounted on death certificates uh, and figuring out those sorts of patterns. And two, figuring out which communities have different rates of uh, killings by police occurring within them, looking at patterns by, by race, by neighborhood composition in terms of different measures of segregation. So when when now it is two months into the pandemic in the United States and George Floyd was murdered, Breonna Taylor, Ahmed Arbery, you know <clears throat> that that springtime of 2020 was was one where I, and I still you know I always ask people this question: Was it a convergence of those murders? Was it um, the the hothouse of COVID? Everyone was home. What do you attribute? You know, I mean, because here's a trend you're studying and following, and now it converges with the largest pandemic in yeah. in American memory, um, recent American memory. How do you see that convergence, and and why do people take to the streets? Yeah, I think this is such an important question that's been sort of under researched and under theorized, and I think maybe one day we'll start to get at more satisfying answers. But I do think it is not a coincidence that we saw what were the largest protests in, I think, the history of the U.S. over police violence at a time of the beginning of the pandemic when many people were uh, collecting unemployment on paid furloughs from uh, the, their workplaces may have been shut or they had sort of fewer fewer distractions in their lives uh, because the, the places they norm the commercial spaces they would normally go for entertainment may have been shut or they may have not been permitted or, or wanted to go to them. And more broadly, I think there was just a profound sense that something was deeply wrong in society between the, these acts of police violence and the pandemic and Trump being president and presiding over all of this. Uh, so, so I think, and I, I do wonder like why, why, did so many white people in particular, and especially white people who normally don't get involved in this sort of thing, why did they take to the streets too? Um, was, was there some kind of basis to that solidarity that involved people thinking about their own precarity and their own position in like a troubled society that, that, that brought them out there? I've been thinking about this a lot too, and that's why I wanted to ask you about it, because it was also... A, a time in which people were taking extraordinary steps to not be around other people. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sorry. Go yeah. ahead. No, no, that's it. I mean, yeah. And, and I, th there was um, this moment, like we didn't really know how safe it was to be outdoors with other people right, exactly. at that point. And there were some controversies over like whether, whether or not people in public health should endorse the protests because they could 
spread disease. We, we ultimately found that this, particularly with masks, it was probably a very low risk. Uh, but, but yeah, I think I, when, when I found, I kind of incidentally found myself in a crowd on the first night of protests in Brooklyn and had a lot of anxiety over being around so many people in terms of like COVID transmission. But, uh, yeah, it, it turned out to be okay, at least from that that perspective. Just a reminder, you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking to epidemiologist Justin Feldman today. Let's talk a little bit about policies from that first year. And did, what worked? I guess that's my general question. What did you see out there, either federal? Um, I don't like to talk about Trump too much. Um, but the federal government was extremely active in 2020 in ways that it hadn't been. and triggered by the pandemic or particular states or cities where you saw things that you thought, okay, that's, that's the direction. Yeah. I, I, there, you have this thing in the U S that I don't, I think maybe the pandemic made me more aware of. I was learning about it in the context of COVID response policy. I was also learning about it in the context of the criminal legal system in the U.S., and that's fiscal federalism, where you have this immense power in the federal government to spend money and to throw money around at, at various things. And you have state and local governments really crafting policies in response to the fiscal conditions created by the federal government. Uh, so in terms of pandemic, I think you need to, to look at them, the different levels in conjunction with one another. Uh, and there was enormous opportunity created by the mostly the CARES Act, but also the FFCRA, the Families First Coronavirus Response Act. Uh, but the, the main pieces of that were, one, giving people checks, just stimulus payments. Two, I think the most important policy at the federal level, at least, which was this expanded unemployment $600 weekly on top of normal unemployment insurance that for the vast majority of people receiving it, uh, they were making more than they had on the job. Uh, and then this money, the paycheck protection program given to businesses to keep them afloat while uh, they were either closed or demand had, had dropped. So what these different fiscal policies allowed state and local governments to do was to enact measures to either close or restrict businesses or other institutions uh, without fear that it was going to completely tank the economy or, or more specifically uh, make it so that there would be mass unemployment, uh, sorry, mass like hunger, mass eviction. There was an eviction moratorium, mass bankruptcy. There were, there were some loan relief temporarily, at least. Um, in terms of specific places, I think there's really, really good. One of my favorite articles about uh, state and local response for, through the whole pandemic was from ProPublica called, uh, it's called something like Two Coasts, One Virus. Uh, that that just compared mostly California, but other West Coast government responses to COVID versus New York, which responded much more slowly to kind of devastating results. But what what I really think is overlooked, and I'd like to highlight, are the the much more precautionary approaches taken in the U.S., where people, indigenous and colonized people, had some degree of sovereignty or autonomy, and that would be. Uh, tribal lands or native nations like 
uh, Navajo and Cherokee nations and Blackfeet nations, or, or even Puerto Rico. Uh, these, these places all had much more precautionary approaches than nearly any other part of the U.S. I'm really glad you mentioned that. I had Mallory Kotaki on from the um, Hopi, um, uh, and Hopi Nation was on, and, and she was talking about it. And she actually, she's an artist. I don't know if you know her work, but they were taking CDC posters and um, reinterpreting them as public health messages for the elders in their community. And they're, so they're, on the one hand, they're sort of like setting up public health capacity within you know, their own communities, but also taking the tools that were being provided for them, but then tailoring them to fit the local needs that they had. It's quite extraordinary effort what they sure. what they did. Um, you know, I want to come back to another thing you mentioned there, which um, is really worth lingering on for a second. And, and it seems now from this remove incredibly enlightened for that Trump moment um, in which he was president, which is that if the philosophy is people shouldn't be um, spreading the virus, we need to, they need to be home, but they also, um, they shouldn't starve. I mean, it sounds like a simple syllogism, but in the United States, you have to actually kind of spell it out. Um, then we need to send them a check. One, two, three. You know, it's, it really makes sense the way you laid it out. It, in retrospect to me, it seems incredibly surprising they pulled that off. Yeah. Um, and I think that's something worthy of much more scrutiny than it's, or, or analysis than it's gotten. Um, and I have some ideas about why it happens. Uh, one is there simply wasn't, uh, we didn't know how long it would last. Uh, there, there was some hope that there'd be this like sort of dr dramatic crisis period that the federal government could get us through briefly and then things would sort of go back to normal. Um, and then so the, the less mundane, more, more interesting point, I think, is uh, the question of who would be harmed, both economically and epidemiologically, had not yet been answered. And uh, it was not yet clear that wealthy people, uh, politicians, CEOs, you know, the, the professional and managerial classes, it was not clear if they would be okay. It was not clear if they were, their health would be okay. It was not clear if they would, you know, come, come out of the crisis uh, unscathed economically. But pretty quickly, both questions started to become clear, the, the answers to them. Uh, and in just a few months, the uh, employment for the, the top third uh, in terms of, of salary jobs had fully rebounded. Uh, you had, if you want to talk about billionaires, you had billionaires quickly amassing trillions of dollars during the pandemic in aggregate. Uh, you have the situation where, uh, oh, and, and of course, like the, the, the deaths and, and disability from, from COVID concentrated among, uh, older people, disabled people, and especially working class people of color and indigenous people, uh, especially. So it was clear that those who were being harmed the most in various ways were those who, uh, had been harmed by U.S. policy typically and who didn't have much political or economic power. And in, in that way, it was easy for Trump and the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, quite frankly, to allow a lot of these programs, which had sunset dates, to not be renewed. So we had, uh, I think most notably, the pandemic unemployment programs expiring, I think, at the end of November 2020 and not being renewed until Biden takes office. And even then, uh, 
going on for a shorter period and giving giving less money. Just a quick reminder to folks, you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking to Justin Feldman. I think it's you've been a close observer, and I think it's fair to say a, um, a vocal critic of the Biden administration's response to COVID. Justin, I, I want to just read um, just a, a little bit from what you wrote um, early this year. You have a, a great, and I'll put up the link, a great post, a medium post. I'm just going to quote here. You said, how did we get in a situation where a Democratic president who ran in part against Trump's horrid pandemic response is letting the virus rip. How do we get to a point where a key organizer of the Great Barrington Declaration, the right-wing libertarian campaign opposed to public health measures, has stated that Republican and Democratic states alike have adopted policies in line with their philosophy. As hospitals fill up around the country, why are political leaders doing nothing to at least try to flatten the curve? It's a really, really essential read. And I want to make sure I'll put the link up here in a second. But I'm going to turn some of those questions, you know, back on on you, Um, you know, holding the two presidencies. It's not it's such a strange thing that you would have a disaster that would play out across two presidencies. And you could look so clearly at at two different responses. And I think in the first few months, many myself certainly looked and said, wow, okay, expertise is back in the room. Um, And now I'm not quite sure what to say about that. Yeah, uh, I think there are some notable differences in the administrations, uh, but there are some really notable similarities, which considering who Trump was and is, is is fairly alarming. Um, I think the, the main differences early on were, and so, I, I mean, you, you kind of, you kind of have to go back to the beginning of the pandemic where a lot of red states did do paid shutdowns uh, at, in, in the first weeks and even even months of the pandemic. It was really uh, the, the summer of 2020 when a dividing line uh, started to form. Um, but re- you never had, except in a few limited cases, you never had the Democratic Party bringing back major restrictions on businesses or, or shutting non-essential businesses. Uh, they were, I, when, I, when I looked in early January 2021, only four states had fully shut indoor dining amid a massive uh, wave of, of deaths. So the, at that point, the, by the time Biden gets into, into uh, office, the really main uh, partisan difference was in over mask mask wearing, whether or not to promote wearing masks, uh, mask mandates were somewhat mixed. You had some Democratic states not not bringing them back, uh, and and then of course you had like, to, are are they is the party are the politicians uh, giving lip service to anti vaxxers uh, or, or are are they are they going along with these? Uh, 
fake cures like ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine before that. So the, those are the, the major dividing lines. But in terms of like non-pharmaceutical intervention policies, uh, they had largely disappeared. So what were some of the key, I mean, let's just go back to the early, early days of the Biden administration. What were there, what were the big differences you saw in uh, policy coming out of the White House, either communication or directly what they were indicating should happen through CDC, HHS, or, or directly in, intervening in states? Yeah. So it was, it was mostly at the, well, one, you had, um, an improvement in logistics for the vaccine rollouts like that. That was pretty notable. Um, but in, in terms of the, the non-pharmaceutical interventions, it was mostly at the level of kind of CDC's soft power uh, mm. and, and its, its nudges. And what it was doing in uh, once Biden took office, Biden took office and said, uh, basically, that there's nothing we can do to prevent a whole lot of deaths from happening in the next couple of months. And then what, what Walensky did largely was uh, get up, use her, use her platform to discourage states from removing mask mandates or removing things like capacity restrictions. But in, in usually in pretty measured language, uh, she did have her one moment where she kind of, she, she uh, talked about her sense of impending doom, but that, that was kind of a gaffe. The actual, like what she was going for and what she mostly did was not single out states and be very, being very measured in what she was saying. At that point, there was no uh, pandemic unemployment assistance and there was no money f to keep businesses afloat. So it was a bit harder for democratic governments to uh, st state and local governments to make palatable shutdown mm -hmm. and restriction type interventions. Uh, so yeah, yeah, it's, the they there were small but meaningful differences on the NPI front that that eventually kind of kind of went away by by May of of 2021. And you you connect that then again to the sort of the CARES Act you know drying up and the various kinds of direct intervention um, coming from the federal government to states. Um, that I mean, you connect those two very clearly. Then, you know, so the government didn't, or the Biden administration didn't feel like they could push that any further around closures or, or any number of sort of non-pharmaceutical in interventions because the money just wasn't there, the political will wasn't there. Well, I I think they they never had a plan. They they really never told us that they were going to pursue these sorts of NPIs. The more NPIs that conflict with business. There were brief moments when they suggested they might, but mm -hmm. at some point, even during, even in the Biden campaign, uh, the, the general election campaign, there was talk of, of what he called safe reopening. So the idea was that there was going to be full return to work, uh, school, travel, and we're going to use things like testing and masking uh, and ultimately vaccination. And that's going to allow us to do those things without these uh, more sort of blunt instrument NPIs. So, and, and then you could see like, what did he propose in his pandemic legislation, the American mm -hmm. Rescue Plan? And there, there was a restoration of pandemic unemployment uh, programs, but it was at a smaller amount. It was at only 300 
uh, extra per week. And there was really very little money for businesses. It was, it was like a, a restaurant bailout, but not not much for other businesses. So, and and it's not like these efforts were blocked. It's that there was never there was never an attempt to try to recreate anything that looked like what had happened in March and April of of 2020. And in fact, when when Michael Osterholm, who was a scientific advisor to the Biden transition transition team, proposed shutdowns in an op ed. The mm-hmm. Biden administration quickly distanced themselves from from that. So it's important, I guess, to recapture that moment in the in the spring, early summer of 2021. For a lot of academics, here's how it went. Um, oh, I'm going to go to a conference in the fall. Like people started to make, you know, plans again. People who'd been very careful started to get the calendar out and say, "Yeah, it looks like well, I got vaccinated." And um, I'm talking about the United States here, um, and new president. Um, These things kind of just amalgamated into a sort of general sense of optimism. Of course, I'm not trying at all to downplay what was still going on for essential workers and stressed healthcare workers and everything else. But um, that was kind of the mood of the summer. And, you know, Biden's approval rating reflected that. And I think the buoyancy inside the administration reflected that. Um, And then by the early fall of 2021, it's a different situation, it seems like. Yeah, uh, basically what, what happened was once, and, and I think this was a plan all along, once every U.S. adult was eligible for vaccination, uh, there was a very quick shift away from all sorts of MPIs. Not that there were that many uh, in, in use, but you had most notably the um, the guidance to wear masks for vaccinated people in public places, public and other places, went away, uh, which you know led to a cascade of of laws at the state and local level and institutional policies, like in, in businesses. Uh, that, that that was was that was the one that got the most attention. They also abandoned a proposed occupational uh, health regulation that would have required things like masks, testing, and uh, paid quarantine and isolation. And, and some other things like they, they started saying that uh, vaccinated people should don't have to get tested. They don't need they don't need PCR tests. They don't need rapid antigen tests unless you're symptomatic, which led to a collapse in demand for testing, which led to uh, a neglect of developing rapid antigen tests. In fact, even had one company destroying millions of tests. Mm. So so the the consequence of these policies was that by the time. Uh, Delta rolled around, we were unprepared. Mm-hmm. And there was really no attempt to to get prepared, to do anything beyond vaccination. And of course, large parts of the population had not been vaccinated by that point and continue not to be vaccinated despite some progress. What do you think about the administration's attitude on vaccine mandates? So, I mean, that, that sort of one thrust is kind of to a Maybe abandon is too strong, but certainly sort of say, I like your phrase, the sort of soft power of the CDC, like, oh, you probably should wear a mask still if you're, well, maybe if you're vaccinated, maybe not. I mean, it's, I think it was confusing, confusing to me, and I try to follow it pretty closely. But then um, vaccine on vaccine mandates, they were pretty strong, weren't they? They... There were moves made to not to not pursue vaccine mandates uh, at first because mm-hmm. they thought it would be too it would uh, 
create too much of an electoral threat to them. So there, there was a, there's an article in the Washington Post that interviewed a bunch of White House insiders that came out, uh, I think, in, in August or September of 2021, where they basically said that um, they had considered some kind of vaccine passport system. They decided against it. They had considered pursuing mandates more aggressively and decided against it because, uh, especially thinking about a an electoral challenge in 2024 from, from Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Uh, that was one of the things they, they were worried about. So they, re- they held off and they held off until September 9th, when, when Biden announced the set of proposals that would uh, ha- have vaccine mandates for there, there were some earlier on for like federal workers, but uh, he announced a set of vaccine mandates for federal contractors, uh, recipients, uh, so healthcare workers, recipients of, of public health insurance systems, uh, funds, and, uh, and then one for a vaccine or test mandate. Uh, being pursued through through OSHA, Occupational Safety and Health Administration. That's that one ultimately got thrown out by the Supreme right. Court. Uh, it's a little jarring to hear you um, talk about electoral strategy and and anticipating, you know, a governor of Florida who has very proudly stood up and said that you know we were the first to reopen we will be the the last to require you to do anything let's talk about and even some discussion of getting rid of childhood immunization for other diseases i mean you know what he's presiding over there in florida is is pretty stunning to watch and so it's become political at a level not only of just worrying about um you know the politics of Risk, risk perception, how the public wondering, hey, is this person in leadership doing a good job? That's a form of politics. But you're talking about electoral politics, like, should we do this policy because we're worried about a primary challenge or we're worried about this particular candidate? I don't know why things still surprise me at all, but I just, I, that just turns my stomach. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, like, there's a notion of a political science, or at least science that is free from uh, direct interference by elected officials. And I, I don't even think that can exist right now, uh, or even that it necessarily should exist. I do, I do think broadly we need, there, there are major policy questions in play that, that affect uh, so many people's lives that I think you, you do want high level executive uh, you know, decision making over it, uh, but yeah, when it's when it's done like that, when it's done in a way that they're really prepping for the next election, uh, and when it, when it's done in a way that that is is reckless or reflects the interests of uh, businesses, like that, that's that's concerning. And I think oh, the the overriding one of the overriding themes we're seeing in the Biden administration is a bet that the electorate will be more forgiving of mass death hospitalization and disability than they would be of a recession or runaway inflation. And those things are, you know, there, there are some people who in public health who like to make the point that the economy and public health are not in conflict with each other. But I have to say, in the system as it exists, sometimes they are very much in conflict with each other. So that's an extraordinary insight and one, I guess, that resonates with, you know, these um, death rates coming from the United States that are just staggering right now. And um, 
you know, the Biden administration's response, I forget when this statement was made, but it's basically, um, you know, if you're vaccinated, um, that this is a, a disease of the unvaccinated now. And so they, they've hung, they seem to have hung everything on that. And, you know, we were discussing earlier about Omicron um, and the downplay of the severity of Omicron. But, uh, you know, in the last month, um, uh, I've received messages and talked with so many people who have got COVID. And most of them are vaccinated. And so none of them have ended up in the hospital yet, although that, that, has ha- that can happen. But, you know, I guess I just... You know, wonder as we move into December and January of, of this year, it seems like those decisions made by the Biden administration last year now are really coming to roost. Yeah. And the, this pandemic of the unvaccinated narrative was so powerful and so successful, I think, until until recently when it started mm-hmm. to to fray a bit, because uh, in, in the U.S. in particular, it's a the ideological apparatus of individual responsibility and not just that, but vindictiveness this this kind of pleasure we get in a way or catharsis we get from our, our enemies making the wrong decisions and bad decisions and getting what, what they deserve, whatever negative consequence uh, it is that really kept the democratic voting base like, in line with what the Biden administration was pursuing in terms of its its largely vaccine only strategy, uh, but yeah, one, once you get to the point where vaccine one vaccinated people get infected, there's also children who who exist who who weren't able and and many still aren't able to be vaccinated. Uh, we usually don't talk, unfortunately, about disabled people who may be vaccinated or but because of their immunocompromised condition or serious multiple comorbidities do end up in the hospital or, or die. Uh, but, but I think it's, it's actually important to, to center them um, rather than, than write their, their lives off. So even, even though the death rate in the U.S. has been about 20 times, 15 to 20 times higher among the unvaccinated, you, because of the age and vaccination patterns, we have about a quarter of deaths being reported by CDC are among vaccinated people, uh, substantial tens of thousands of vaccinated people dying uh, that don't shouldn't have to die because they should have their vaccination complemented by these other public health measures to allow them to protect themselves even more than vaccination would allow them to. And you feel really confident that if we still had some of the measures that we had, let's say, in May of 2020, that that death rate would be much lower? Yeah, I mean, there, there are real questions about what the U.S. could achieve uh, with its political realities um, and, and obstacles. So I don't, I don't think we'd get down to the death rate of South Korea, for instance. I'm, I'm not sure we'd even get down to the death rate of Canada, which is another, you know, highly unequal federal system uh, with, with strong culture of individualism like the U.S., um, but we, uh, I think the best case scenario would have been that the Biden administration placed pressure on blue state and democratic governors to implement some level of restriction. It could be closing indoor dining. It could be, uh, not having, uh, indoor weddings or, or conferences or large scale events. Uh, 
and it, it, yeah, we'd still be in a bad place. But the the thing about having what's coming up to be 900,000 official deaths, preventing even a small percentage of those adds up to a lot of deaths or, or deaths prevented rather. And just to circle back on this, how much do you worry that people who bought into the Biden administration's pandemic of the unvaccinated rhetoric and who've now had it or like so many Americans have at least someone in their family or a close friend has. What do you think? I mean, we're talking about political perception of public health here. What will be the impact of, of that? And I know, I guess it's a little hard to, to game that out, but maybe based on other, you know, evidence you've seen over time of when people's trust in public health is sort of there and the new data comes in, will they waver? Or do you think maybe a lot of people who've been following, you know, smart guidelines up to this point are just going to say, yeah, Omicron was a beast and that's the way it is. And we still have to trust this administration. Yeah. I mean, I I think a lot of people are quite skeptical of CDC and their, their COVID advice and, and of, of the information coming out of the white house. And I think they're right to be skeptical. Um, And you want to hope that the if they're if they're seeking out alternative information that it's coming from credible sources. Uh, I don't. Yeah, I, 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 this isn't exactly my my research area. I don't study this. I can I can imagine that someone is sort of radicalized by by what are pretty clear prioritization of business interests and and flip flopping uh, and and issuing of the precautionary principle of. And they get turned off by that, and they maybe radicalize in a way where they turn anti-vax or they turn pro-ivermectin or, or whatever. I don't know how often that actually happens, mm-hmm. uh, but but it can't it can't be a good thing. And just for let's linger just for a second here. This uh, advice from the CDC to go from ten days of quarantine if you have a case to five days. I, how do you count for that advice? And, and I and I mean, I think, again, many people know somebody who's had COVID at this point who's still sick on day five. And it's like or and or people who got sick after they were exposed to a person who had been out of the quarantine. I mean, it just in, it just doesn't, you know, and it, I'm talking in anecdotes here, but um, that advice just seems terrible. Yeah, I mean, the the Biden administration backed itself into a corner based on all of its previous decisions. So we were entering the Omicron wave without uh, pandemic unemployment. It had expired in September. There was no attempt to renew it. Uh, We we had no more paycheck protection program for businesses. A lot of these policies expired. So you could imagine uh, another world where we said, okay, we're, we're going to try to to blunt this wave of Omicron and spread it out over time and have fewer people be infected. That's going to mean paid furloughs again from non-essential businesses. It's going to mean transition from uh, to, to remote or hybrid schooling, which requires uh, parents who are workers to be at home. And that requires social support. Um, and when we did that the last time, there was a, a dip in the stock market and GDP, et cetera. Uh, and and this time we have inflation that's that's not to levels not been seen for for decades. We have had I think seven to eight percent inflation in 2021. 
so there, there was there was a sense that we have to push through this. And the only way to push through this uh, is to, to make sure our schools and businesses stay open and to prevent widespread closure due to not public health measures, but to the virus itself. We need to get people back to school and back to work more quickly. And they made that very clear. In, so when, when people like Fauci or Rochelle Walensky explains what the rationale for the policy, they made it very clear that the purpose was to keep open businesses and to keep school in-person school going. Uh, they did allude to scientific rationales at the beginning. Right. Uh, those eventually sort of, sort of, uh, they, they kind of backed off on the scientific rationale existing because they didn't really have, have data on it. Ultimately, um, CDC's counterpart in the UK, the health security agency, uh, they, they, they actually wrote a blog post where they talked about their own modeling they did, uh, mm -hmm. and, and said that, that going from five days to 10 days, sorry, 10 days from five, to five days would have made it so that between 10 and 30% of workers would still be infected and they didn't want to do that. Uh, I think Boris Johnson placed some pressure on them to try to do that later on. Um, but, uh, and, and I don't know where that stands now, but yeah, it, it was, it was kind of, kind of a mess, kind of like a case of blatant uh, business interests triumphing over, over public health. I was going to say, I mean, it just seems now that the way you describe it, it seems like a profound moment of truth telling through policy. Um, you know, basically the economy can't take a hit at this point through that logic, or we're not willing to provide the social safety net that was necessary um, to keep people out of the workplace or out of school. And so what's the, the ledger on the other side is going to be death. Yep, death and an overloading of... Uh, Hospitals, healthcare workers being beaten down, uh, schools being in a really difficult situation, trying to keep running amid all this. In some cases, bringing in police officers or, or just r random volunteers uh, to, to replace teachers, which at that point is certainly not about education or educational quality. Uh, so, yeah, it, it was it was and, and continues to be and will continue to be for the next few weeks. Uh, pretty pretty bad situation with the highest rate of hospitalizations we've seen in the entire pandemic. We were talking earlier about your research on state violence, police violence as an epidemic and, and using a public health approach to that. Um, let's sort of bring that conversation full circle. What are you seeing now? I mean, it was a moment in which that that discussion was front page of newspapers across. It was in circulation and discussion in a way I'd never seen in my life. Yeah. Um, is it being decoupled again? Is is Omicron just too big of a story and, and it, it's kind of slipped off the front page? I know it hasn't slipped off out of the mind of researchers, but where do you see it as a um, as a public health issue that's in the public consciousness right now? I would say in, in an even broader sense, um, there's been a, a fairly successful backlash to mm -hmm. the racial justice protests and movement of that that started or, or its latest iteration in, in 2020. Um, you had this move to uh, kind of controversial in some circles, but uh, not to me, defund the police, which is really about taking resources out of the criminal legal system and putting them into the social safety net. Mm -hmm. um, and that 
There are few, if any, jurisdictions in the country. I think Austin, Texas is one of the only ones where police budgets got cut. Um, what happens is, so one notable thing in the American Rescue Plan that was good that may not have happened under the Trump administration was major federal resources allocated to state and local governments. Um, not not really earmarked largely for public health purposes, but the the like the idea was they're going to help with the response to the pandemic and help you cover your your shortfalls. Um, that money was often used to for police overtime, for uh, jail and prison overtime, with the encouragement of the Biden administration. Uh, so so we're we're kind of seeing the opposite of 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 what this movement intended, rather than seeing the transfer of resources from the criminal legal system to public health and, and social welfare. We're seeing we're seeing the opposite happen. Uh, and yeah, uh, I, I don't I don't know where you know we we had an uptick because of all the social disruption and economic disruption of the pandemic, an uptick in interpersonal violence, mm -hmm. which has led to that. That's always been a really difficult situation for uh, police reform or accountability movements. Uh, and, and that's where many, many of us find ourselves right now fighting an uphill battle, not to mention this uh, CRT thing uh, <laughs> and, and the backlash about that and the, the recent anti-affirmative action Supreme Court opinion. So it's, it's, not, it's not looking great. We're almost out of time, but I, I wanted to ask you, I would never ask a historian this, but I, I'm, since I have the opportunity to talk with an epidemiologist, uh, where are we going to be a year from now? <laughs> I, th I think that's not to say a historian might not answer, by the way, <laughs> yeah. but we're not we shouldn't. <laughs> um, I think the trajectory of the pandemic is going to really be influential in answering that question. And, and there's so much uncertainty to to how it's, it's going to unfold. I think there there is a, a possible world where we get to lower levels of COVID spread and lower levels of death. Um, a, a year from now, and I, I hope I hope that's our possible world. Um, but what I what I see and what what's already happening and what I fear, even in that scenario, is a normalization of what may be, let's say, a million deaths a decade, in, on top of all these other in the U.S. on top of all these other causes of death that that have been mounting up, and that being normalized and not taking public health action to prevent it. Uh, so I don't. I don't see this going anywhere particularly good. I, I, what I hope is that social justice movements, uh, again, be, mobilize and organize and uh, try to push against this, this new normal, whether, whether you're thinking about new normal as the balance of power shifting back in, in favor of criminal legal system and, and over-policing and that sort of thing, or the new normal uh, being accepting of mass disability and, and death. I just want to remind everybody that you've been listening to COVID calls and you can usually catch COVID calls at 6 p.m. Eastern time. And I've been talking today with epidemiologist Justin Feldman and um, you'll, he has a lot of articles and um, uh, been very active in addressing the public with his expertise, which I really greatly appreciate. And I want to make sure people know he has this um, medium post a year in how has Biden done on pandemic response and you should be able to 
to check that out, uh, just go to jmfeldman.medium.com and you can find that piece and other writing as well. Uh, Justin, thanks a lot for for this time. I hope we get a chance to talk again. I think particularly um, we left things a little bit in a pessimistic mode there about about Black Lives Matter and social justice, but I want to. I, I think that needs to continue to be at the top of the list of discussion points. Yes, I agree. Th- thanks so much for having me. R- really appreciate it, Scott. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you next time on COVID calls. Mm-hmm.